Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on October 19th at approximately 10.30am GMT. As always, if you want to read any of the research which is talked about in today's podcast, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. And follow us on Twitter uh, at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. So, it's time for today's guest. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Catherine E. Brown, who is a lecturer in Islamic Studies at the University of Birmingham. Catherine specialises in gender, jihad and counterterrorism. Her research examines Muslim women's involvement in political violence, the role of gender in jihadist ideology, and the gendered impacts of counterterrorism policies and practices worldwide. This work engages directly with public debates on security, religion, and women's rights. She has published widely and is currently working on a monograph on anti-radicalization policies and gender. She is the series editor for the newly launched Routledge Focus monograph series, Islam in Europe. She is a member of the Muslim in Britain's Research Network and the UK Higher Education Academy's Islamic Studies Network. She is a lead academic board member of the European Union Radicalisation Awareness Network run for practitioners in this field. Her expertise has also been sought by a number of academic policy, government and media outlets in the UK, USA, Canada, Australia, Norway and Austria including, for example, the 9-11 Memorial, the UN, and the European Parliament in 2017. In 2018, she, uh, from 2017 to 2018, she is consulting for UN Women on Gender Mainstreaming Encountering Violent Extremism programmes. Recently, she has given expert advice and testimony in the UK in a number of cases involving radicalisation. Catherine, thanks so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. So, how did you first get involved in this area of research? It was actually largely by accident. I was doing field work in Egypt where I was looking at women's rights organizations and how they started negotiations with the state and with women's rights organizations. And the women that I was talking to there uh, said to me, oh, Catherine, you're talking to the wrong women. You need to talk to the other women at the other mosque and you need to start talking to them because they have a completely different idea of what politics should be and what women's rights are. And the women they were referring to were radical women, uh, Salafi women in the main, although at that time they wouldn't have referred to themselves in that way. And so I started getting really interested in the women who refused mainstream politics, who thought that there were alternative ways of engaging uh, with the public sphere and engaging with their religion in that way. And so that's really how I ended up uh, in this kind of work was through the advice I suppose of my original uh, PhD research and so around when was this oh my word that must have been uh, back in 2003 um, possibly 2004 um, and that was the very first of it and then when I came back to the UK I was interviewing Muslim women who were involved in women's rights organizations and they started telling me again about other women who didn't want to participate in the mainstream who felt excluded from it and so we're seeking alternative ways of participating in the public sphere um, and sometimes rejecting it entirely as well. And what kind of reaction were you getting from these women when you were interviewing them? And what exactly were you talking to them about? Um, initially, I was quite nervous about talking to them. I thought, why would they want to talk to a complete outsider like me? And actually, what I found, they were very open in the first few years of me doing this research anyway, um, in talking about their experiences, their faith, their politics, their motivations, um, the people they were involved with. And we generally had what I would refer to as quite open-ended conversations around which then politics came came to the fore and their decisions to support violence or not support it and the different ways in which they engaged with that. But also their rejection of the mainstream was, was very, very clear that they didn't feel there was a voice for them or a space for them. Um, and for some of them also that their faith precluded them from engaging with it as well. So they were really wide ranging. Um, I would say though that over the years, those kinds of conversations have become harder and harder as Muslim women involved in these organizations have become more uh, skeptical of researchers and academics, uh, more nervous because of uh, fear of uh, the police and the law 
And so that has definitely made work slightly harder. And do you feel that this has made it harder worldwide or in the specific context that you're interviewing? Um, I think the UK uh, has some particular requirements that makes it quite challenging. But actually, I think it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon where <clears throat> women who would previously have been wanting to talk and express their opinions as a way of support, uh, sometimes promoting their work. Sometimes they think that uh, talking to an academic will, will promote what they're doing. Um, but other times they just want understanding. But now that skepticism and that fear um, has made it harder. And I think that's a worldwide phenomenon. Um, especially in European states. Yeah. And so around this time when you're interviewing this uh, this population and you're being advised to, to meet with different women than you were originally uh, meeting with, you're obviously around the PhD time, you were immersed in the, in the research around this area. And so what was the piece of research which were influencing you at that time? So at that time, um, I would say that the majority of my work was actually informed uh, by Talal Asad's writings and that was because <clears throat> a lot of the discussions around religion and politics and and in addition women women and religion had certain ideas about what religion was and um, religion was defined in politics in quite narrow ways and in ways that didn't really seem to fit the women i was interviewing it didn't really fit the women who were either rejecting politics or the women who were engaging with it and the ideas of religion as being very formal and always about belief rather than practice um, didn't fit through. So when I started reading Talal Asad's work, what that said to me was actually religion is more than just a system of meaning, but also that we can't just dismiss it as a kind of instrumentalist uh, mode, that it's not just uh, window dressing or an excuse, but it's part and parcel of how people create meaning and understanding of their actions and their politics and their way of life. So Talal Asad's work enabled me to open up some of the ideas about what religion is and then how we can approach that in our own work, especially in uh, terrorism studies, where I think there's a tendency um, still to see religion and in particular Islam as fixed, that it, there's either good Islam or bad Islam, but either way there's this thing called Islam that we can talk about. Whereas what Talal Asad asks us to do is to challenge that, those assumptions, the construction of religion, and really look at how it's formulated, how those ideas come about, how the interaction between ideas and people's everyday practices and their behaviors uh, intersect and create much muddier understandings of what religion is. And I found that particularly useful in understanding then how religion featured in their decisions to engage in political violence. Yeah, and this, this in-depth, nuanced, holistic understanding of religion and the role that it plays in, in people's lives is vitally important if we're to, to really get to grips with it. Now, this is a piece, the piece that you mentioned uh, by Assad, was you've, you've uh, put forward Genealogies of Religion, which was published yeah. in 1993. Do you think that, is there... Now in 2017, do you think it still holds true or are there any updates or that, that you think would, would make it an even more important text? Yeah, I would say that, well, since then he's written a few more uh, publications and in particular one around secularism and ideas of secularity. But the basic principles uh, within the book, I think, are still really relevant. And especially as policymakers and academics start engaging more with Muslim communities who are defined, or who they believe are defined by this idea of faith. And as we start to engage more with the idea of radicalization as being about narratives and ideology and belief, then we really start need a more nuanced and holistic understanding of what religion is in order to avoid some of the oversimplifications of people's decisions to engage in violence. And another piece that, you, that you've uh, put forward as influencing you is the Saba Mahmoud piece from 2004, Politics of Piety. What was yeah. it that this added to Assad's understanding that, in, in developing the way that you were looking at, at yeah. your research? So Talal Assad really talks about the concept and, of, of religion. But what Saba Mahmoud does is she, she engages with people. Um, in, in a more concrete way. So her book is an ethnography. It's about her engagement with women working in mosques. And she is really interested in the question of why would women, similar, actually similar group of women to those that I was interviewing, uh, why would they engage with a type of religion and a type of politics that on the face of it 
restricts uh, freedom, restricts their, their politics, restricts their ability to communicate, um, and generally is seen as the antithesis to liberal feminism. So why would women volunteer for this? That was her research question. And her answer was actually really insightful because it opened up the question of agency. Um, in some ways, it reminded me of much earlier work by um, Denise Candiotti, which talks about bargaining with patriarchy. But what Saba Mamu does is take that even further and really unpacks ideas of agency and empowerment and looking at the different ways in which women can be empowered through movements such as uh, those that she, she was in, um, interviewing and observing in, in Cairo at the time. And this concept of agency, you can see this throughout your work, uh, which we're going to get onto later, that a lot of the time you're, you're putting forward the idea that the counter-radicalization, counter-terrorist policies that are being put forward uh, are not acknowledging the agency of women within this role. And was it uh, these writings of Mahmoud that was that was influencing you in that way? And uh, do you feel that that's changing in any way or is it still true today? Yeah, absolutely. Sabah Mahmoud's uh, work helped me think through some of the ways in which uh, our stereotypes around Muslim women's agency were coming to the fore and how that influenced the, those women, but also how we can theoretically challenge that as well and, and open up our own understandings. Um, the other book that really helped me with this came a little while later, actually, um, was Laura Soberg and Karen Gentry's work, uh, Mothers, Monsters, Whores, because that too talks about the stereotypes around women's violence. And those three stereotypes, mothers, monsters, whores, shows the ways in which agency of women generally uh, is ignored in policy, in culture, in society. And instead, we like to reduce women's decision making and their violence to very narrow confines. And I would say, um, especially with the update uh, of Karen and Laura's work, that this still holds. And I found it increasingly in work that I've been doing around counter-radicalization. And a lot of the policies and programs that are put into place rely on certain stereotypes about Muslim women and their agency. They presume that women uh, lack agency. They presume that women only have power if they're mothers or wives. And they often presume as well that men and their interaction with these has to be as some kind of hero um, or father figure uh, in these programs. And I find that rather frustrating that these stereotypes persist even in 2017. Yeah, and this is this is really ringing through in your in your piece, Gender and Anti-Radicalization, Women and Emerging Counterterrorism Measures, published in 2012. And what what was it that you found through this piece? What uh, what was the overall aim of the chapter and what were the, the core findings? Because you're not looking just at the UK here, you're looking at cases such as Indonesia, Saudi Arabia and others. And so where, what were what were you trying to achieve with this piece? So that piece sits in a wider uh, book that's talking really around national security and human rights debates. And one of the things that often gets talked about is the idea of women's rights being held up as an antidote to radicalization, that it is often presumed that communities where women's rights are upheld, then they are more resilient to radicalization or less violent overall. And I was really interested in how that played out in policy and also whether or not we can actually hold that to be true. And so what I wanted to do was to look at the policies in quite different contexts, to look at how women are understood in countering violent extremism policies, say, in Europe, but also in the Middle East and in the Far East, because these are quite different communities. These are quite different states. We have Muslim minority states and Muslim majority states. And I was interested in unpacking some of those assumptions. And what surprised me, and I really wasn't expecting to find this, was that across these programs, the same stereotypes come out, that actually it doesn't really matter whether it's a Muslim majority state or a Muslim minority state, the way in which the governments and the policies and the programs frame women and their role in countering violent extremism is remarkably similar. And in all of them, what they're trying to say is that women's participation is mostly shaped through the violence of men. They very rarely consider the violence of women as important. And in addition to that, that women's role in relation to the violence of men is always as a 
modifying or moderating influence that somehow women have an innate pacific quality that they're tree hugging and because they have children therefore they wouldn't ever engage in violence and these stereotypes were across all the countries and persist in all of the programs and influence the way in which these programs operate and i think that's really important people think of this as just being an academic exercise but actually if we think of these policies and the way they frame women then it limits their effectiveness it means they're firstly not looking at all of the people who participate in political violence they're not looking at all of the people who are radicalized the programs cannot account or accommodate women who do these kinds of actions and in addition to that because they presume certain things about how women operate they then don't actually look at the reality and undermine the overall effectiveness of the programs and then worse because it really does bug me. Um, on top of all of that, there's this instrumentalization of women's rights, that women's rights are only good if they have a function for the state, that they're not useful or good things in and of their own right. So we see women's rights being tied up with security discourses and security debates, and the overall aim of women's rights then is lost. It's now about how can the state be more secure rather than how about we look at how women can participate in the state and what the state can do for women. And so, like, I, I can, you, you can tell your passion through to the way you're talking <laughs> about it and in your writing, and it's brilliant. And so, would you agree, and I think you put it at some stage during the chapter, that within these counter-radicalization and counter-terrorist um, policies, that women are treated as vulnerable uh, as opposed to, to men as being the strong actor here? And what, yeah. if, what effect does that have then, practically speaking, in the specific context of UK, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia that you referred to? So one of the ways uh, we can look at this, this framing of women as vulnerable, is actually in a more contemporary example, which is the debates around the returnees from Iraq and Syria. So when we talk about women who are returning, we see them as victims, we see them as vulnerable, uh, we have a particular desire to help them uh, readjust Yet in contrast, when men are returning, we're much more skeptical of their stories around trauma. We're much more skeptical of their stories that they did not participate in violence. And we see them as a threat to national security. So what that means is women are held up as potentially redeemable, that they can be reintegrated into society, whereas men, in contrast, cannot be. We presume that once a terrorist, always a terrorist. And I think that has particular implications for the people who wish to return. It has particular implications for the young people who want to return, male or female, and also for their families and, again, for how public policy responds to them. So it's, it's a really not just a one-sided view of, uh, of women. It's a one-sided view of men as well. Like, so when you're arguing, arguing this, it's not just being critical of the way women are treated, but also the way that men are treated as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one of the things I often say is that when we discuss women's rights, this isn't just a story about women. It's a story about men as well. It's about how men are framed in these debates as particular kinds of men. So there are particular assumptions about what it means to be a Muslim man and how that uh, stereotype gets played out. And then we presume certain things about actions in Iraq and Syria on the back of that. So it can result, for example, in Muslim communities being cast as particularly deviant um, because Muslim men are seen as threatening to the security of the state. What we find actually in Indonesia and in Saudi Arabia is that this is often colored by class, that working class men are presented in this particular way um, and that their Islam is seen as threatening. We see that in Pakistan as well. So it's tribal uh, Muslim identities are threatening ones because they don't know the correct Islam, which for, as far as the state of Pakistan sees it. And so too for men in Saudi Arabia, um, should they participate in violence, they're seen as needing uh, correction because they have the wrong kind of Islam and therefore they're deviant and threatening, but their masculinity always plays into that. And so with all of this, uh, this in mind and everything that you've put forward in this chapter, what would be your, what would be your advice on how to redeem this, on how to, uh, to apply these, this critical analysis to make the counter-terrorism and counter-radicalization uh, policies better? 
so I suppose uh, the obvious answer there is to look and take seriously gender mainstreaming in CBE. And gender mainstreaming isn't just about how do we think about women, it's also how do we think about men and masculinities. And taking seriously gender as a category of analysis in our program evaluations, and also taking it seriously as a variable, looking without almost taking our blinkers away and looking again at who is participating in violence and how their gender influences their violence. And I think that's the way in which we can start that redeeming process. And that's what we're beginning to do with UN Women next year. Yeah, could you talk to our listeners about what, uh, what UN Women is aiming to achieve and where we're at at the moment with that? So what that project is about is it, it's firstly a mapping exercise. So it's looking at the different countering violent extremism programs that exist worldwide and just looking at how well do they on a global scale address the question of gender and gender mainstreaming. And this is important because of the women, peace and security agenda that has been put forward for the past uh, 10 years or so that recognizes that women need to be part of the peace building and peacemaking processes in order for that peace to be sustainable. And if we translate that into the field of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism, then again, we need to look at who is participating in the countering violent extremism programs, how is gender incorporated, and that is in order to make these programs more sustainable. But it's also about recognizing where women's rights and the human rights framework can help generate a, a position of good governance in relation to these programs. And so what UN women are also trying to incorporate within this process of examining uh, where gender is in these programs is also looking at where is human rights and how can that provide a framework for good governance. So the next phase is after having done this mapping is then to look at good examples um, and to create, if you will, guidelines for countries in how they might think about gender differently um, and how they might incorporate uh, gender analysis in their programs. So you're, that's obviously the next stage of the, the project, but do you have, we've been talking about the, the mistakes that have been made and for want of a better term, the bad examples. Do you have any good examples at the moment that, that you can refer to just to, to show how it could be done properly? <laughs> um, I think there are a number that are, are still in progress. Um, the EU has actually funded a couple of programs through, uh, an, I think, through RUSI, um, which is called STRIVE. And that program does look at gender and it looks at how to better use female police officers uh, in Nigeria. And what that program does is really look at the contribution of uh, women in the security forces, uh, specifically the police, and how that can best be utilized for CVE. What's interesting there in that case, though, is that they concluded that the effort to specifically include women might not actually be worth it in the end. So we have to look again at that program and their evaluation of it to see why it was that Rusi um, concluded that way. Yeah, and, and this is what we, we constantly need to be doing. We need to be reviewing and re-reviewing all these, these policies and practices. While that piece was focusing on policy and practice, your, your work has also been looking inward at terrorism research as a whole and thinking specifically of your piece, Marginality as a Feminist Research Method in Terrorism and Counterterrorism. What, what was this piece about? Uh, and for the listeners, what, do you, what were your core findings here? Okay, so this piece is quite a theoretical and methodological piece, um, but it, I find that it reflects most of my approach over the past few years. And it started out with a, a reflection on my own position in studying terrorism as actually a marginal position. And it's marginal in, in a number of ways. Firstly, as a woman in studying terrorism, um, this is quite unusual. Security studies as a discipline is quite male dominated and as a practice as well, quite male dominated as well. And so reflecting on my position as a woman this then led me to think about how feminism is received within security studies and in particular within counterterrorism as a marginal category. So it's an marginal approach. It's always seen as on the sides. People will include feminism or gender analysis almost as footnotes or as a paragraph that they feel they must include rather than something they take seriously. And then the second area in which my marginal status uh, made me think about was also as a non-Muslim 
writing about Muslim communities. As an outsider, how could I possibly uh, begin to understand the challenges that various Muslim communities are facing? And that notion of being an outsider also uh, made me think about this idea of marginality, because I felt that as an outsider, I didn't just remain on the outside. We traveled towards the, the center, if you will. Um, and what I liked about the concept of marginality was this notion of it being a journey. That marginality is not just what's left on the, the outside of the text or put in the footnotes, as feminism often is, but instead it's also a journey. It's a journey to the center and back. And that stems from much, much older work from the 1930s, actually, looking at uh, racial segregation in the United States and how... Uh, black communities were on the margins of cities and how they then traveled towards the center for work and employment and how their journey towards the center every single day uh, was shaped by their experiences of color. And I was thinking about that in terms of counterterrorism research and how researchers can think about their journeys towards uh, the center, whether that's in, in my case Muslim communities or perhaps in other uh, communities as well, and what it, how that shapes their research. So it's both a, a position of exclusion, it's also a process by which we move towards the, the center of our research and how we gain more understanding of our research through that journey. And then the third thing about marginality is sometimes it can be a conscious decision. It can be a conscious decision to stand on the margins and to protest. And it can be a, a powerful place um, rather than a place of subjugation. And as a powerful place, it can hold a mirror up to the mainstream and offer challenges and critiques. And it can, as an outsider status, as being on the margins, it can reveal something about the inside that perhaps insiders cannot. And that's really where that quite theoretically loaded piece is coming out. It's really a call to arms and an embrace of being on the margins. Um, do you feel that it's beneficial for an individual researcher to be, um, and what benefits did you find from being so introspective in, in your work and and the and looking at yourself as a researcher? So you could interpret it as being kind of a, an exercise in navel-gazing and self-indulgence. But actually that process of self-reflexivity improved my practice. It improved how I interviewed people, how I spoke, and participated in organizations, it made me think a lot more about the types of information and the types of research that I was carrying out and the ethical considerations of doing this research. I think unless researchers are conscious of their own positionality, that is how other people view them in their research and how their research might be used, then I think we miss a lot, that we become oddly blinkered by our own position because we haven't thought about it too much um, and we miss some of those some of those events on the sidelines some of the things in the margins that can actually be really important because sometimes what is not said what is excluded who is left outside can be more important than who is uh, inside the meeting room who speaks and indeed what they say yeah I've, i found it a really eye-opening piece and and it made me it, it made me think about the way that I view terrorism research and the way I view other terrorism researchers as well, and that the way I view myself. And did it make you as well think about uh, marginality within the terrorist groups, the marginality of uh, uh, in some terrorist groups of, of women within these groups? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that it really made me think about was, although, for example, Salva Mahmoud talks about women's agency having joined these groups and having taken up an Islamist position. When we look a little bit more about how women participate in these groups, we find that it's a very varied uh, picture and that that empowerment doesn't necessarily follow through in ways that the women imagined and also that they do find in, in a lot of cases that they remain on the margins of those groups. So you often find women's wings being set up or that they're excluded from policy making within the organizations. Um, they take backseat roles. But this isn't to say that they don't find meaning or purpose in those roles, but perhaps that uh, we can't just assume that it automatically brings empowerment in the way the women anticipated. Yeah, and w with you talking about that, it, it brings to mind um, 
coming to mind in relation to the IRA, the women's ring, wing of the IRA. And I remember reading uh, about how the Price sisters, Dolors and Marianne Price, when they wanted to join the IRA, they were told, OK, go and join coming to mind. But they, they were saying within your language, I, we don't want to be on the margins. We want to be in the centre here. We want to be in the provisional IRA, not in any auxiliary unit. And it was the same when they were in prison as well. They were saying, we're not coming them on. We're the provisional IRA as well. So it's, it's there, there are, you can see examples across history of women who are trying to break out of the margins within these groups as well. Absolutely. And, and it's, although my work focuses on Muslim women, it's certainly not unique to them in, in doing this at all. And we can also see it, for example, with the Black Panthers and also with FARC. Um, you can see it to some extent with nationalist movements in, across Europe as well and in Yugoslavia and the Balkans. So, yeah. yeah. And what... What other groups do you feel could potentially be uh, seen as on the margins within terrorism research? Or did, it, did your thinking go in those ways? So other groups that are potentially on the margins in terrorism research, I would argue, are children. Um, although it's stereotypical to lump women and children together, I think that studying children and their participation in political violence has largely been ignored. It's currently in the media eye because we're concerned about... Um, the media about migration flows and we're concerned about ISIS but I don't think ISIS are unique in using children in terrorism and I think that's an area of research that we could definitely explore further. Yeah and you can see the work uh, that's coming out in the, the near future from John Horgan, Mia Bloom, uh, Max Taylor and and others they had a uh, piece in studies in conflict and terrorism about it and they have another book coming out about uh, about children in, in terrorism uh, and they're utilizing um, models that were developed in relation to child grooming as well yeah. and seeing how that, how that can apply um, yeah how that can apply to understanding that as well yeah I'm not I, I have to confess that the, the child grooming uh, models um, worry me actually because of the gender uh, assumptions within some of those modeling. Um, I find that the language around child grooming and sexual grooming in relation to radicalization um, overly sexualizes um, the experiences of children in terms of uh, radicalization. And I think it tells us more about uh, our concerns for children rather than necessarily the concerns of children themselves. So I'm really interested in where uh, that group of research is going and whether they can overcome the foundational um, concerns in, in using this language of grooming. What do you think would be a better language to use in relation to this? Well, uh, given that most of my work is framed around rights, I would suggest, again, looking at the whole language on child rights and how the rights of the child can be protected and understood. And using that, that language of, of rights is one way in which we can overcome some of our um, stereotypes around gender and sexuality. Yeah, and this is these are debates that we need to have to see what Absolutely. is the the right way of approaching different a variety of different topics, as you've done uh, throughout your work uh, as well. And your your work is moving forward to uh, in a in a direction where you're you've got a forthcoming piece uh, entitled "ISIS as a Proto State." Um, so this. I haven't read this piece yet. I'm looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Um, but what, what is, what's this piece about and where is it taking your research now? Okay, so um, this piece is going to be in an updated, a second edition of a book called Gendered States that came out in the first edition was many, many years ago. And this is a, a second edition with a range of newly commissioned chapters of which mine is one. And as the title suggests, it's around the role of gender and statehood. And what this work is doing is looking a little bit more about how politically violent groups such as ISIS are framing themselves in terms of governance rather than just in terms of violence. So it's looking more at the broader context of their violence. And what I'm arguing in relation to so-called Islamic State or Daesh is that their attempts to create a state um, will always be in flux. That because of the way in which they use violence, and in particular the, the way in which they use gender, and the way in which gender informs the group, means that the project of statehood will never be complete, that it will constantly be in, reformation, in reformulating itself over and over and over again, but that it will always cohere, that 
although at the moment there's a lot of focus on the decline or the breakup of ISIS, that it will somehow disintegrate, the ideas behind it and, in fact, its ability to regenerate itself um, is really important. And that's what that book's doing. And do you feel that uh, how so-called Islamic State have have used gender, has that evolved uh, recently or has that been a a stagnant? So one of the key ideas that Islamic State put forward was that as a state, it is able to offer security and safety. And that's the key claim to there being a caliphate. So it can only be a caliphate if it can truly offer security and safety to uh, rightly believing uh, Muslims. And I put that in square quotes because it's their definition of what counts as a good Muslim, right? Not mine. And they, they claimed to offer safety and security for all good Muslims, according to their uh, understanding. Now, obviously, it can no longer make that claim, uh, because clearly what is happening in the territories that it's held uh, does not constitute safety or security in any meaningful sense. Um, and in fact, it's highly dubious that it could ever make that claim. But in propaganda terms, it, it certainly tried to do so. Now, if it's offering a place of safety and security, one might question who that was for. And in the past, Islamic State would say that that is for women, that it was offering a safe place for women and men would protect them. And in doing so, it then said that actually it did not recommend that women carried out acts of violence. And although there's a lot of hype around seeing women with Kalashnikovs um, or seeing women carrying out acts of violence, within the territories that Islamic State held, it was very clear that women's positions would only ever be defensive. However, over time, it then modified its stance to say that, well, if you can't come and join us, then actually women can carry out offensive acts of political violence in their name. So that's when we start seeing women being involved, for example, in attacks in Paris and also uh, in Kenya, in the West Mall um, shopping, uh, shopping mall, Westgate shopping mall attack and but there again they're saying but only if you can't join us only outside of our territories because in our territories women are safe now even again as that security narrative is wavering and they're unable to claim that sense of safety they're now saying that actually women within islamic state territories have an obligation to defend themselves their families and the idea of islamic state and therefore their violence can be more expansive than they had originally uh, understood it to be. So the group certainly regenerates itself, it reformulates its ideologies, um, and I would say that it's going to be a force um, still for for many years to come. And have you seen this reflected just in in the actions of the group, or have you seen it in the statements of the groups as well? It's both in the actions and in the statements, although actually less so in the actions. I think um, they tend to get overhyped um, and that actually is quite uh, common. When women carry out acts of violence, they get way more uh, media attention than men. Um, but their statements as well have shifted. In the beginning, when women did carry out acts of violence in their name, they were very co- careful not to call them fighters. They were very careful to say they were only uh, supporters. They were definitely not soldiers. Um, and although they were sometimes also called martyrs. But now we're seeing the Islamic State are shifting their language. They are referring to women as, as fighters and as martyrs. So there, there have been a few changes. But again, I would say these are um, born of necessity rather than strategy. Okay. In, the, in your opening answer to the, about the, this piece, you were talking about... Um, the good Muslim as defined by Islamic State, and you put you very purposely put that in quotation marks. But also in your writings, you've said you've talked about uh, the construction of the good Muslim in a counter radicalization point uh, yeah. way, and that this is this is the state's idea of a good Muslim rather than anything anything else. How is this affected? Going back to your piece on counter terrorism and counter radicalization, how is this concept? of what we believe a good Muslim to be? How has that affected the way that counter-terrorism and counter-radicalization is operated? Well, the first thing that it does, and, and I'm certainly not the only person to talk about this, is it creates the category of the good Muslim and the bad Muslim. I am, and this has been talked about extensively. But actually what it also does is it limits participation in politics more broadly. Because should 
Muslim community members wish to participate in politics, we might think, oh, well, actually, what these countering violent extremism programs do, what counter radicalization programs do is give them the space to do so, because clearly not all Muslim, right? But actually, what it does is it constrains that, because should they get involved in certain types of politics, for example, opposition to um, Israel, should they support Palestine, should they be get interested in foreign policy in any way, uh, should they be concerned around the treatment of Muslims anywhere in the world, then this instantly lumps them in as potentially radical. Whereas if I was concerned with these issues, I don't get framed in quite the same way. Right? So there's a clear uh, limit on the types of politics Muslims can get involved with because of this constraining idea of who is a good Muslim and what's a good subject for Muslims to get involved with in politics. But also it constrains them because their identity is forever defined by religion. So they then end up being the Muslim representative of a particular community, or they can only really talk about Muslim affairs, um, and they're seen as being the representative of Islam and Muslim affairs within politics more broadly. So should they want to take up issues of the environment or anything else, really, that um, it always gets coloured through this idea of them being Muslim first. And I think that can be hugely limiting in terms of the range of politics and participation in society more broadly. And have you seen this happen across history with other religions or other nationalities or other mm -hmm. groups who are who, by definition of, of who they are, are forced to represent uh, their religion, their nationality, their race or whatever? I think we can see that. One really interesting uh, comparison that's been done is actually looking at migrants from Eastern Europe at the turn of the last century in the 1900s. Um, and the, they were um, predominantly Jewish and predominantly Yiddish speaking and predominantly working class. And when they came to the UK, uh, fleeing um, uh, violence and persecution from, there, uh, from Eastern Europe and Russia, there were lots of concerns around this community, uh, a lot of concern around their politics um, and their protest, a lot of concern around them speaking a foreign language and about their class and against their religion. There was a lot of anti-Semitism at the time, and we can see that in newspaper reports and in parliamentary debates and also in pamphlets that were, were, carry, um, were distributed and in the protests against them, the fascist protests against them. And what we have seen as a result of all of that over time is the idea of being a minority as somehow having to assimilate and becoming a good version of that group and having to lose the threatening bit. So whether that was speaking a different language, having different cultural practices, and in particular, making your faith private. So the idea of faith being private becomes really important. And so the language around secularism, I think, can help us understand a lot more some of the ways in which our Muslim communities are being treated in terms of CVE. Um, and we can look to history as well for that. Yeah, and, and this is something that that I feel with so many issues that we're dealing with in this podcast and across terrorism and counterterrorism studies, we cannot ignore history. We have to look to to examples that and lessons that we have learned from the past. Because if we're constantly saying this is something new, let's reinvent. We're constantly trying to reinvent the wheel and not making any progress as well and making the same mistakes as we did in the past. Yeah, and, and I think there's also this this idea that somehow terrorism research only started in 2001 um, after the the attacks on the World Trade and the towers. I, I think that's a huge mistake. And we really do need to look at the research of the past and to learn from those, um, those, those researchers that have gone on before us. So an example of that is looking at the research done in the 1960s and 70s around cults and new religious movements. And a lot of the work there on brainwashing and radicalization of those movements and of those groups has if we were to look at that, we could learn some of the lessons and the mistakes that those early researchers made and perhaps, I say optimistically, try not to repeat them. Yeah, and, and you can see this, uh, the same message coming through from a number of our guests here, and especially when we look at the concept of radicalization. There's, there's a lot of discomfort about the, around the use of this, and I can, I can mm. sense this through, through your writing as well. Like what, how do you feel uh, it's been, how, how do you feel about, about radicalization as a concept? I think it is as politically laden as the term terrorism. I think it gained in popularity because we assumed that it would somehow overcome the politics of labeling a group or 
as a terrorist or not. So we got past the Nelson Mandela problem by having this idea of radicalization. With radicalization, I have a number of concerns, and in particular, the idea that we must focus all of our attention on the individual. Because there are so many different ways of becoming a radical or joining a terrorist group, we then get lost in a quagmire of 200 odd variables that we can't possibly untangle. Um, and every single pathway is different, et cetera, et cetera. But still we're obsessed with the individual and it's almost as if we want to medicalize the problem of radicalization and then give somebody a magic little pill and they'll no longer be radical. But the other problem with focusing so much on the individual is we ignore the group. And I think by ignoring the group, we miss a lot of the wider context in which violence happens. Violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in places, in groups, with, uh, in a collection of ways. And I think looking at the group is really, really important, not just focusing on the individual. And radicalization enables us to ignore the role of the group and context by only ever focusing on the individual. And then my second problem uh, stems actually from, from focusing on the individual is this obsession that radicalization is about belief. Um, by focusing continuously on this concept of belief and ideology rather than looking at behavior and belonging means that we ignore so much of uh, why and how political violence is carried out. And this, in fact, goes right back to the work of Talal Assad and of others where they unpack the question of what is religion. And what we find is that when we start to define religion as a question of belief, very much coincides uh, with the Reformation and with the rights of individuals, and it becomes about private freedom of expression and belief, but it's about what we think, not what we do. And I'm seeing that in radicalization thinking and policies and practices, this obsession with what we think rather than what we do and the environment in which we do it, so our sense of belonging and how we belong in that environment um, misses so much of what is going on and it really blinkers the possibilities of uh, understanding and preventing violent extremism. Yeah, I think these are really important points and there's so many things that can blinker us. Uh, many of them you described there um, uh, within, that, within that great answer. Um, and this idea of purely focusing on the individual rather than the group or, or the context, we have to, we, as, as all of your research has, has shown, we have to, to take everything into account. It's, it's not just the individual, it's not just the group, it's not just the context. We have to take all of that working together, all of those interacting together to really come close to an understand, a fuller understanding of what's going on. With all, all of your research uh, and your knowledge of the area of terrorism and counterterrorism research, how do you feel the state of terrorism and counterterrorism research is at the moment? So I'm possibly a little bit more optimistic than um, others. Although, yeah, I am actually. I think that on the one hand, we face considerable pressure studying this from about state intervention, the desire to, to study and provide policy relevant and practical research. But I would argue that terrorism research has always had that burden placed upon it, that there is always an expectation that research that we carry out should be uh, useful to some people in some way. But I would say that because researchers are more conscious of that, because researchers are more guided uh, by the broader context in which their research is carried out, they're aware of the implications of their research, that actually I think in the future, terrorism research can attend to some of those issues about how it's being used and the methods that they approach. So I think there's quite a lot of optimism about that. And where do you see, what do you feel the, the next big issues that need to be addressed and challenged within this area should be? Uh, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because I, I kind of think of this as gazing in the tea leaves and mm. hoping that I predict the next big terrorist group um, so we can all jump on the bandwagon and research it. Um, I do think there's going to be increasing attention on children. I think that as our understanding of what childhood is and our understanding of child rights develops, um, we will become more attendant and attentive to um, how children participate and understand political violence um, in the broadest possible spectrum way. I also think that we need to be more conscious of the far right. And while I'm aware that in the 60s and 70s and through the 80s, actually, this division between left and right certainly framed terrorism research. 
I would say that some of that has been lost with our obsession on looking at uh, so-called Islamist violence. And we need to pay our pay attention again to the rise of the far right. And I think that's where future research is likely to go. But I also would suggest that we need to look at the role of religion within that. There's an assumption, I think, in a lot of research that far right movements are somehow without religion. Um, and I would question that. And for... Um for feminism in particular within terrorism and counterterrorism research, uh, do you see uh, do you see a growing uh, utilization uh, or growing influence? Or and if so, what advice would you give to people who are utilizing similar approaches and what topics they could approach? Okay, so I certainly hope it's going to be more widely used. I think gender is an important way of understanding what's going on in the world and in particular in relation to politics and violence. And I would suggest there are three quite simple ways in which we can think about utilizing gender more in our research. The first is the most obvious one, which is to consider gender as a variable, which is to look at, okay, where are the women, where are the men, and simply to count up sex, if you will, you know, and look at that as a, as a pure variable. The second one would be to a little bit more complex and look at how gender helps constitute those individuals and those groups. So how do they use gender ideology? Where is the, the femininity or the masculinity in the promotion or otherwise of violence? What is the cause of the group? And what is the motivation and the agency of the individuals involved? And then the third way I would argue that we can use gender in our research on terrorism is seeing gender as a potentially transformative category. That actually by looking at gender and unpacking our assumptions around gender, we can begin to unpack our understanding of terrorism itself and our understanding of radicalization and state responses to it. So it's a really good tool for unpicking so many of the categories that we take for granted. And in that sense can help us rebuild our basic knowledge assumptions around terrorism, radicalization and how we counter it. Catherine, I think that's a, a great way to finish up today's podcast. I'd like to thank you for, for giving your time and this really interesting uh, discussion. I hope thank and you. I'm sure that our listeners uh, were as interested in it as I was. Um, for thank anyone who wants to read further about any of the research that was referred to in today's, in today's discussion, there are links to the, to the books and articles they appear in on the on the Talking Terror website, that's uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. That's both the Catherine's own research and the research that, uh, that has influenced her. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and give us all your feedback uh, using the hashtag Talking Terror. So, uh, Catherine, thanks once again for, for being with us today. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to Thomas Hegkammer about his, uh, uh, his research and the research that influenced him as well. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Okay.